Hello, future billionaires. Welcome back to another episode of the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast. We've got a really fun episode for you today. We've got a returning guest, Justin Donald. You may know him as the Lifestyle Investor. We had him on the show a few months ago talking about his book, The Lifestyle Investor, and really the concepts that he's created it allows him to live this very financially free lifestyle while having a lot of success investing. So he runs a lot of different communities and masterminds. Um, helping teach people how to invest better. One of the cool things about his story is that he's really been able to grow his net worth primarily through investing really well instead of having a big exit of a business where a lot of people you know, come into wealth that way. But he's really grown it by compounding his wealth over time. And so we wanted to bring him back on the show and take a different approach and actually use our Passive Investor Spotlight series kind of framework to talk through some of the ways that he looks at his own portfolio and his own risk reward you know, frameworks and how he finds deals and how he structures deals. He calls them invisible deals. And so it's really, really, really cool what he's shared on this, on this episode. Um, he even shared that some of the things he talked about, he's not shared on other podcasts before. So he really kind of goes into the nitty gritty. Definitely don't want to miss this episode. A lot of great nuggets to pull from it. Hope you enjoy. This is the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast, where we uncover the alternative investments and strategies that billionaires use to grow wealth. The tools and tactics you'll learn from this podcast will make you a better investor and help you build legacy wealth. Join us as we dive into the world of alternative investments, uncover strategies of the ultra wealthy, discuss economics, and interview successful investors. Looking for passive investments done for you? With Aspen Funds, we help accredited investors that are looking for higher yields and diversification from the stock market. As a passive investor, we do all the work for you, making sure your money is working hard for you in alternative investments. In fact, our team invests alongside you in every deal so our interests are aligned. We focus on macro-driven alternative investments so your portfolio is best positioned for this economic environment. Get started and download your free economic report today. Welcome back to another episode of the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast. Today, we have a returning guest that we're very excited about. Uh, one of our favorite uh, episodes that we've done before was an interview with Justin Donald, the lifestyle investor. We have him back for another conversation. Justin, how's it going? Good. Great to be on the show again. Good to uh, hang as always. You know, we, we just got a chance to hang out, you know, Ben and Jim. So uh, good to see you again. That's right. That's right. Always love chatting business with you. Yeah, it was fun. We, we got together just a few weeks ago and thought, hey, it'd be fun to have you back on. It kind of took a diff different angle. So we, in the last episode, uh, just talked about your story, um, your brand called The Lifestyle Investor. You've been called the Warren Buffett of lifestyle investing, uh, which is you know, a great tagline to get and uh, really describe what is lifestyle investing? How do you achieve it? What does that mean? And very, very cool episodes. So go back and listen to that if you have not yet. Um, but we want to take a different angle today. One of our favorite segments we do on the show is called our Passive Investor Spotlight, where we kind of dig into a little bit more of the nuance of, you know, how do you how do you view kind of public versus private? You know, what kind of alternatives do you invest in? What do you think about you know, from an allocation standpoint? How do you you know, build your cash flow, you know, stacking and, you know, income versus growth? All these kind of questions that get a little more practical, a little more specific. Who better to ask than the lifestyle investor himself? And so we thought it'd be fun right. to bring you back on and dig a little bit more into it. So are you up for this, Justin? I'm up for it. I mean, I, I eat, okay. sleep this. This is like my favorite thing to talk about. So we can go in any direction you want. I mean, I can geek out on you with with very specific stuff. I could give general overview, but um, I, I love talking about this. So yeah, I'm ready to rock. Okay, this this will be fun. So- Let's let's definitely uh, air toward the the kind of geek side of things because that's okay. that's where it gets most fun I think. But uh, just again for those that don't are familiar with you, you listen to other episodes. Just give us the quick background, kind of in your story and your journey, kind of into this world of lifestyle investing and kind of what that means to you. Yeah, well, I just wanted to get to a point where I kind of owned my time again. I felt like uh, you know at different seasons of life, I've been more or less in control of my time and. Um, you know, uh, how my time is being spent, um, how I'm earning income, if I'm earning income based on time. And uh, at a certain point, I just wanted to buy my time back. I felt like I moved from, you know, maybe a sole proprietor uh, type of, of life 
to more of like the business owns me type of life. So it was more like reactionary than proactive. And I felt like I was just putting out fires or moving from thing to thing. And I just wanted to get to the point where I was choosing how I spent my time. So that's where this whole idea of lifestyle investor kind of came, you know, into fruition is that I wanted to buy my time back. I wanted to, not that I wanted to sit around on a beach and and drink, you know, pina coladas. Um, but I wanted to work on the things that I was passionate about on a schedule that I was passionate about, you know, and, and, Maybe some weeks it's a lot of hours and maybe some weeks it's no hours or it's a few hours, but I just wanted to have a lot more autonomy than I had. And so I started buying assets that produced income uh, and that income eventually grew to exceed our lifestyle. You know, first it was our uh, bare minimum survival expenses and then it was our uh, lifestyle expense and then it replaced my earned income. And uh, then it got into this you know, place of surplus where I had extra. So, you know, it can either go towards, you know, building an even, you know, cooler, more extravagant life, or it can go to investing more into, you know, building wealth for the future. And and I always opt to, uh, I feel like I got a pretty fun life. And so I just opted to, you know, reinvest all the surplus into other things. So once I had my time, I got really clear on where I was passionate and uh, how I wanted to use that time. And, and that's where the lifestyle investor brand really blossomed. And I started teaching people how to buy assets and, um, you know, kind of sharing deal flow that I'm doing and negotiating preferred terms and, uh, you know, the mastermind and the book and the podcast all kind of blossomed from there. Hey, let me ask you a question. So when you were just starting and, you know, acquiring this income producing assets, so I'm assuming you, you had a regular, quote, regular job, right? You had the, okay, from reading your bio and whatnot. So the person who's out there that's, you know, maybe a professional, a high, you know, high salaried professional, but they're thinking in order to acquire enough assets to actually replace my income, that, that can seem like a, a long haul. And so my question is, did you fund that strictly from surplus of the income you were earning or did you start syndicating? or using other people's money in the process, or was it a combination? How can a person that right now is feeling like, I'd love to do that, but man, that would take me 30 years, and I'm already 45, you know, address that. Yeah, Jim, a super uh, important question. And and I mean, I, I think that those that are very high income earning, you know, individuals, whether they're business owners or they're in corporate America, like th- that is the toughest spot to be in because uh, you've got the golden handcuffs. You've got a lifestyle that you're accustomed to. If you leave it without replacing it, then life does certainly change. Um, so for me, uh, you know, I, I was a, a high income earning professional. I kind of worked my way up. But what I realized is that I didn't have to replace it in one fell swoop. So I never raised uh, money from other people. Uh, that is one way to do it. And I think it's a great way to do it if you have the bandwidth for it and if you want to develop the network for it. I know a ton of people that have done it and it's probably a way that you can get to where you want to go a lot faster. I did not do that. I, I funded everything with my own dollars and I worked pretty hard to um, aggressively save and aggressively invest in the deals that I did. But the the thing to keep in mind is that you don't have to replace everything. Uh, it starts off simple. Maybe it's replacing uh, some utilities, then car payments, then mortgage. And, and eventually you're building up. And again, it's like, let's get to survival income. Like you can make a total pivot if you have your bare minimum survival expenses on a monthly basis covered, right? Mortgage, utilities, car payments, groceries, you know, whatever else comes along with it. So you don't have to fully replace everything, but if you can handle it, if you can swing it, you can keep your day job a bit longer and have that fund more of the investments. And, and again, you can raise money, you can do deals, you can do bigger deals if you bring more people in, um, depending on where you sit. Maybe you saved a lot of money and you can do it all yourself. So I, I think either direction works great. There's pros and cons to either side of the fence there. I just think getting a start at some point is really well worth it. And And even if it takes... Um, you know, a few years, I think it's still going to be worth it when you get there. Yeah. I, I love both those things you said, like 
so much of it, it feels like it's this big far off goal, but you can take it into little, little bite-sized chunks. Just replace your first utility bill, right? On a monthly basis and just get that snowball rolling. The faster you kind of do that, the faster the snowball goes and it kind of compounds and, and builds up this, um, this momentum. The other thing I think is, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in reading your bio talking before, you, you've done all this without a big exit of a business, right? A lot of people build a business and then they can sell it. They have a big liquidity event and they have all of a sudden $10 million that they can now deploy. But you've been able to do this kind of step-by-step, step, uh, you know, time over time and build up this kind of snowball just from excess. And, and is, that, is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah, I, I still to this day haven't had a substantial, you know, business exit. Um, you know, I just had my first seven figure exit, but I was a minority partner in that exit. So my exit was not seven figures, um, but the the cumulative exit was. So, I mean, up until the point that I had financial freedom, I had no exits. Um, so th there was no significant windfall in cash. Everything was literally a step by step progression um, to cover my survival income and then my lifestyle income and then beyond. So what what was the time frame from kind of that first passive income check, right? That you that you got from your investing in assets to achieving kind of what you call the excess, you know, the the be able to fund the lifestyle. What was the kind of time frame between that? It, and if you don't mind, when you go through that, mention what kind of asset I know that changes, but what what assets initially did you you know poke the fork into? Yeah, I got into mobile home park investing at first. Uh, really, it, it at first wasn't something I was interested in. I had a friend that was going to do it and, uh, you know, started learning about it, was in single family homes and was like, man, this is a lot of work, a lot more than I signed up for. The margins aren't there. The overhead, the capital expenditures, the uh, management, it is a nightmare. And so he ended up selling, I think, uh, eight or nine or 10, uh, single family homes and then going into buying his first mobile home park. And I got to watch him firsthand and it was a smooth transition. It did not seem hard to manage. And he's, you know, I, I was kind of like a hard money lender at the beginning and, and transitioned into being, um, you know, the, you know, an owner myself, just buying the deeded property. And so in one fail swoop, one park, I replaced my wife's income. She was a teacher at that time and uh, she didn't have to work. We had our daughter, you know, shortly thereafter and, you know, she could be a, a stay at home mom and, um, you know, is a really good situation. So that one, you know, I, I, I went to a boot camp to learn how to do it. Uh, within months of that boot camp, I found a park, found an owner that was willing to sell or finance it with a 15% down payment. Uh, then I bought another park from him. So, you know, in, in a matter of months from the time that I started learning about it, I had an acquisition and within, you know, months of that, I had another one. Uh, and, and really in one fell swoop, my wife's income was replaced. And then with that second one, our survival income was replaced. So uh, and really it was kind of like a back-to-back -back transaction that all, uh, ended up happening in, inside of a single deal. So I almost closed on one, found out about another one, added that to the contract, uh, over the due diligence period. And, uh, and so, yeah, really we went to survival income immediately. And did you have like a, a decent nest egg built up at that point to be able to invest or are you just able to use creative financing and, and other structures to kind of uh, maximize the dollars that you had? Yeah, I'd been saving up for a while for that first purchase. I didn't know where it was going to come from as I was saving. Um, so this was, you know, a substantial amount of what I had saved. I mean, it may have been close to everything. Um, th the first one was uh, uh, 75,000, uh, technically 65,000 and then 75,000. Um, so I ended up doing that at the same time. And that was almost all of my money I had saved at that point in time. So I think that or accessible. What you just went through there, that that is super key to to our our listeners and our watchers, because a lot of people were thinking and what I was kind of feeling, and I you know I've been there in the past, but the man, if I buy a house every you know year or two years, yeah, I could see down the road where tenants are paying off the mortgage. But again, I'm you know that's great if you're 20, but you know. There's guys like me out there. I started over from scratch at 55. I was broke. Buying a house a year wouldn't have done it for me, right? Yep. So, so you got smart. I mean, you saw the the real estate was the play, but where where's a niche to stick the fork in? And then you did you used leverage, but smart leverage, right? And that's what that's what enabled you to get there. And that's why people actually need 
coaches and mentors like yourself that have programs and courses where you can help people get there, you know, faster. Nothing wrong with the slow, the slow, steady train. But again, the older you get, the the more, you know, the closer we are to the, you know, the end of the ride. And we want to, you know, we want to get there. We want to get there to uh, have that passive uh, cash flow uh, as, as quick as possible without taking, you know, undue risk. So appreciate that. Uh, your secret sauce there, I think, was the mobile home parks and with seller financing, just turbocharges that whole, that whole process. Yeah, it's multiple units. So it's instead of buying one single family home, you know, I bought, you know, 60 lots in one transaction. So you have some default, it, you, you don't even feel it, right? And then that second one was 59. Uh, now that one was not very, I mean, that was way less occupied. So I think the first one was like 97 or 98% occupied. And the second one was like 37% occupied. So I had my work cut out for me. But all you add, baby. Yes. Sure, for sure. So, so, so kind of from that point, give us kind of the high level, you know, abbreviated journey from purchasing your first, you know, mobile home park to kind of how you've built out your portfolio now. And it also, I mean, it is important to know like this, you're kind of going more in an active approach to this first acquisition, right? With some, some people may not want to go and be as active as you were, though that may be a good place to start, right? To kind of really learn the ins and outs of some of these things. But, you know, have you kind of shifted your approach to from an active versus, you know, passive role in investing as you've wanted to, you know, create more time? So kind of give us that kind of journey from here. Yeah, I'll give you the, the you know, abbreviated version for anyone that wants to kind of read the whole story. It's outlined in my book, The Lifestyle Investor. But, um, you know, I really look at investing in kind of like two different um, genres. You kind of have two different sides of the fence. You got, you know, side number one is where you buy deeded property. You're on the hook for everything. You're managing that asset. You can hire out a property management team to do it. You're going to take less uh, of profit when you do that. So you can either, you know, really work hard to maximize the profits or you can go the syndication route. You invest in other people's deals. You invest in other people's funds you're going to take a reduced return because you don't own or you own a, you know, a, a percentage, a small percentage of it, but it's institutionally run. It's, you know, managed third party or in-house. You, you're paying people, you're paying professionals, not people that are learning the job on the job. These are people that are actually good already with a proven track record. And so I think you're really weighing and balancing. Uh, are you maximizing the return or are you maximizing your time? Like how much time you're putting into it? And I think Either way is good. I think both ways are good. It's just getting clear on what you value most today. So yeah. early in my life, I valued um, the the return uh, portion of it. So I was willing to do everything. I was willing to be the property manager and learn it. I also think that was smart for me because once I did hire others to do it, or at the beginning, I brought it in-house, um, is... I learned everything so I knew if people were doing a good job or not, or I knew if they were you know, scamming me or not. And so... There was an aspect to that where it was great. I did everything. My returns were much better. Uh, you know, I eventually tried to outsource some of that. Um, we had some good groups and some bad groups, and uh, I've since gotten a lot smarter uh, on that front. But today, I don't, I don't transact for time. You know, earlier in my career, it was a, a time swap because the return I could make on my time was much greater than maybe what I was making or. Uh, for the hours I was putting in, it was a larger dollar per hour uh, doing that than doing my day job, for example. Or, you know, I'm able to leverage with systems or other people. And so that return is greater. Um, today, I'm not willing to make that uh, transaction. My, my transaction today is I'll take a lesser return for no time spent. You know, maybe the only time is the diligence on whatever the deal is. Uh, so, Again, I think either is great, but today my money works for me. I don't trade time for money. In the earlier years, I traded time for money, but I did it in a way that was calculated where I made a, 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 you know, a move based on what am I earning today in my profession and what can I be earning with those dollars elsewhere? Can I do it as a side hustle? At what point can I transition and do it full-time or even part-time first and then full-time? Uh, or do I even want to do it that way? Right. I mean, the other thing about real estate is some people get into it and it's passive income in the beginning, but when you buy too many of them, it becomes an active job and then they're trapped and their business owns them again. And you see this in the real estate world all the time. So that's another case for investing in syndications and doing deals with you guys. 
um, and and many of the others that are are providing amazing deals out there that are professionally managed and run. So I would say that you know you so you, the, the continuum is kind of you can go you can go buy a machine that's dialed in that produces cash, or you can or you can build the machine from scratch that will ultimately produce cash, or you can buy a machine that needs some work and you can add. But whatever bandwidth, whatever energy you have to to apply to the machine is going to pay you, you know, so you want to pick the kind of machine that's going to be still paying you 10, 20 years from now. So Mobile Health Park, for instance, now you've probably sold it and moved on, but, but it, even if you hadn't, it would still be sitting there minting money for you. So that time and energy that you put into it, that wasn't, that wasn't passive. That was active work to build a passive income machine. And I think that's probably where most people are are going to have to start, unless they just inherit a lot of money, or uh, you know, or they have access to a huge four hundred one k or something. So to make it, you know, to kind of lower the bar to somebody that's got a brain and is willing to work and has a decent income, it's kind of the best of both worlds because you can start applying some new skill sets. You know, you you, you can either buy the hundred percent occupied mobile home park that's all dialed in, or you can buy the one that man, this is going to be some work. But hey, once I do this work. That thing will still be paying me in ten years. It'll obviously require some upkeep, but uh, I mean that's kind of the model I've followed through my through my career. But uh, yeah, certainly. And, and and you know to follow up on kind of the path as you had asked me previously, uh, you know I side tangent here, but uh, you know to even address what you had said, I still own those first two parks. Uh, I've actually only sold one mobile home park uh, to date. And I took that money and, and did a 1031 into two other properties. So I kind of doubled up on that, um, and, and just grew it. And so those two properties are still minting, you know, cash, they're just, you know, cash flow machines, uh, and, and really have afforded us a, a great lifestyle. So, uh, we get offers all the time uh, for people that want to buy them. And we just, we haven't ever pulled the trigger, but that led us to more, you know, surplus income. You know, we bought our our third park that then we, you know, rolled that into parks, you know, the next two, uh, which covered our, our, uh, earned income. So we got the lifestyle income, then we got to earned income, uh, then we got to surplus income. And then our problem flip-flopped. Our problem originally was we don't have enough passive income, um, or we don't have any passive income really is what it was, uh, to like, now we have more passive income than we know what to do with, which doesn't sound like a problem but it actually is a problem. It creates a, a situation where like, I want to be a good steward of, of the money that I'm being entrusted with. I don't want to just sit on it. I don't want to, you know, make poor choices. And so that's really what uh, forced me to get into all the other alternative investments because I could either keep building the mobile home park portfolio, which we have done. We do have an arm of our business, our real estate arm, um, and, and one segment of it, uh, continues to acquire mobile home parks, but the problem would just get bigger and bigger. We needed to figure out a way to take that surplus income and allocate it in a way that, um, wasn't just producing more cash flow today. And, and also in a way that was smart in a way that would, uh, de-risk the portfolio in a way that would balance it better from an asset allocation standpoint. And so that's why I started studying, uh, who the wealthiest of, you know, the people that I could get access to their, their financials and to their portfolios and, you know, what family offices are doing for, you know, those that are, you know, in that decamillionaire, centimillionaire category, what are the billionaires doing? What does their portfolio look like? And am I modeling it after that? Because, you know, most entrepreneurs, they have a uh, huge risk because the majority of their assets are in their business. And then, uh, everything else from there is likely in public equities for those that are professionals, um, in the corporate side of things that don't have a business. Generally, uh, most of their investments are in, you know, stock market, public equities, which again, like a lot of people say, oh, it's diversified. That's actually still a huge concentration risk because you're at the whims of how the markets react, which is irrational. You never know what's going to happen. So it's not to say that you don't invest there, but to put 100% or 90% or 75% of your total net worth in that one like sector, that's that's like high risk and scary to me. Like I would never do that. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of the research we've done on the ultra wealthy, you know, in different groups like Tiger 21 and, you know, other reports you can find that are 
publishing the portfolio allocation of these ultra wealthy investors, generally it's about 25% or less are actually in the public markets. That's right. right? Which is severely flip-flop for most retail investors, you know, where it's at least 75% is in stocks and bonds. And to your point, over time, you know, stock bonds, you know, they've become more correlated than they ever have before. They used to be kind of the helpful balance, but I think it was 2022 had the worst year for the 60-40 portfolio in history. And part of that is correlations are kind of going to one. So they all kind of move in tandem and you don't have the diversification that you maybe once had. You know, kind of shifting to that. So you've kind of talked about your journey and your approach to investing has shifted over time from more of an active, you know, uh, approach where you can generate higher yield as you're kind of more involved in it to now where you're really more focused on maximizing time, return on time. So you're not wanting to be in the weeds and involved in every major decision on these things, investing more passively. What does your portfolio look like today? And maybe you know, break it down from you know, your personal, which may not apply to everybody, but then also to kind of how you would, maybe rules of thumb that you use for evaluating, you know, different types of asset classes, um, you know, public versus private, uh, you know, different levels of risk and reward that you're kind of benchmarking against. Just kind of give us a snapshot into you know, Justin Donald's uh, brain and how you think about the, the allocation portfolio. Because I think this is another, another area that a lot of people don't think about when they're kind of getting started is they kind of just do onesie twosie haphazard investment into just things that come across their desk without any real consolidated approach to here's what I'm trying to build and here's where I want to end up. Yeah, great question, you know, Ben. And and what I would say, like you're spot on on, on some of your stats. I've been in Tiger 21 for five or six years. Uh, and so I'm always looking at the allocations that the members submit. And, and you know, they've got some great data points that I think are are definitely worth taking into account. And the reality is very few people built their uh, wealth in the stock market. Um, a lot of people maintain their wealth with a hope to grow it with a percentage of it there. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, retail investors and and those in corporate America are generally over allocated to it, um, you know, just just based on the data. But um, if you look at the wealthiest people in the U.S. and in the world, I, I just see more, you know, data from the U.S. Uh, it, it is uh, it is surprising how small of a percentage uh, is actually in the stock market. Um, so, and by the way, you, you mentioned, you know, one of the worst performances, uh, ever. I mean, in the last hundred years, you can look at the data, the 60, 40 stock to bond, uh, portfolio allocation that was touted as the safest, uh, way to invest your money was the riskiest, worst performing in 2022, right? Like that, that should set off, you know, alarms, and, and red flags galore, not to mention that you have the statistic um, that, you know, over the last 15 years, only 5% of uh, money managers, financial advisors uh, outperform the S&P 500 index. So they charge a premium for you to invest your money with them, but then they perform, 95% of them perform worse. And the 15 years before that, only 4% of them beat it. And the 15 years before that, same thing. And by the way, from 15 years to the next 15 years, it wasn't even the same 4% that were the 5%, right? <laughs> so it's like the, 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 all you need to know is in these statistics that most people pay a lot in fees to have worse performance than the cheapest way to get allocation to, um, you know, the, the public equities, which is just, you know, some of the indexes. You, we can just use the S&P 500 index, um, which is your lowest cost way of doing it. You can go in on your own. So I, I just wanted to share that. Um, most people build their wealth from a concentration strategy, but they maintain and grow their wealth from a diversification strategy. So if you look at the wealthiest people, they're not trying to uh, get wealthy in the stock market. They're using the stock market as one component of their asset allocation. And oftentimes they're not even using it for the return, they're using it because they can borrow against it. They can use margin to uh, invest in other things without creating a capital gains transaction. If they sell a stock, they have to pay capital gains tax. If they borrow against it, they don't pay any tax and they can acquire more assets. So you, the ultra wealthy aren't using it straight up for the return. They don't wanna lose money in long-term, they're banking on that segment uh, outperforming, but 
they get real um, time, uh, like, you know, uh, out uh, ways to outperform based on a cumulative uh, utilizing of those dollars plus the return. So I think that's important to note. And if you look at, um, I mean, I've looked at, uh, I mean, literally hundreds of centimillionaire, billionaire family office, uh, Tiger 21, uh, you know, the, the banks publish, you know, these reports on, on asset allocation. And you are generally seeing public equities at about anywhere from 15% uh, to 30% right now. And by the way, some of the largest endowments in the world, uh, the largest endowment of the world, uh, or in the U.S. at least, um, uh, had, uh, based on uh, credible information, uh, had less than 15% of their portfolio uh, invested in the stock market. You know, so like, think about the the groups, the institutions, the, um, the Ivy League programs of the world and where they're investing their money. Uh, like, I would like to copy them uh, more so than, you know, follow the herd. And and if you keep, I mean, we can geek out on all the details, but you got another 25% that's generally real estate. You got another 25% that's generally private equity. And then you got 25% everything else. And that can be, you know, uh, a small crypto allocation. Um, you've got uh, fixed income. You've got cash and cash equivalents. You've got precious metals. You've got uh, private credit. You've got um, uh, agriculture you've got commodities. And so some of these are like 1% allocation, right? You're just, or half a percent allocation. Uh, others of these are, you know, maybe a larger percentage, but there's not actually a lot of variance across the board. You look at the wealthiest people in the world and specifically in the US, the numbers are pretty darn similar across the board. Right. It, it, it's so interesting to me. It, it kind of reminds me, I saw over the weekend, this um, kind of bar chart of the the actual causes of death by year and what those things were. And then it was right next to it, what the media reported on by percentage of airtime compared to the actual. And it was like completely opposite, right? Like all the, the terrorists, you know, things and all the um, homicides, like they're very, very small percentages of the overall deaths, but it's like makes that 50% of the airwaves. It seems very similar, like we're, the kind of mainstream media is always pushing, you know, this simple, you know, cookie cutter approach to stocks, bonds, mutual funds, when the ultra wealthy aren't actually doing that, right? If you break it down a look a little bit deeper, it's 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 really not the how they're investing. And you mentioned endowments, like Yale Endowment was one of the first pioneers of this, you know, many decades ago to allocate into the private alternative sectors to generate alpha to generate above market return and they were very successful in that being the most successful endowment you know for a long period of time so yeah, i would definitely recommend you, you said you're part of tire 21 for anyone that's out there it's not familiar with this group you can go and download this uh allocation report they publish it quarterly for free and you can see exactly what justin's talking about and it's really great nice little graphic you can see how this this breakdown is and it's published quarterly i've been following it for many years just because it's interesting data points and most of the time, I mean, maybe there's slight changes over time, but largely it's pretty well, you know, baked in as far as what the allocations are. So you kind of followed that similar approach to kind of what would be represented there from your own portfolio, or how do you kind of you know, personally adopt some of these these concepts? Yeah, um, another great question. And you know, Ben, for me, um, I want to model after the smartest people, the smartest groups, the smartest investors. Um, you know, if, if you're following mainstream media, you're following uh, programming from those that are the biggest investors, donors, contributors. So it is it is um, there's marketing to a retail investor and and Wall Street is uh, they know what they're doing. They're, they are marketing uh, to the masses that you should have your money with them. But if you look at the wealthiest people in the world, and and let's talk about, you know, I don't, I would imagine a lot of your mark, your your audience uh, is U.S. based, probably most of it U.S. based. Um, the wealthiest people in, in the United States, um, you go across any of the uh, the reports, you go across any of the groups, um, you will see that over half of their portfolio is in real estate and private equity. Over half. 
and we could geek out on you know a private equity what is venture and what is you know uh early stage and what like you know I, i'm not a high risk investor so i mean for me i would want just a small allocation of one percent a half percent in kind of the moonshot type of stuff uh and for me personally i i like that coming from assets that already cash flow so that i'm not losing the principal i'm just every month i'm getting cash flow and if i were to put something in it's a piece of that cash flow that to me is de-risking um that high risk investment because on the on the angel side it, your your smartest investors out there basically say that you need to have about a hundred angel investments to get one good return, uh, and and you, if you're a great angel investor, if you get two out of a hundred, like if you follow Nabal Ravikant, like I mean, just think about like he he's one of the most successful angel investors, but think about those stats; those are horrible stats, but there are ways to game it. There you know there are things that we've done in our mastermind where we've been able to group it in different. Um, uh, you know, funds where maybe we have exposure to 600 to a thousand and one fail swoop, where not only can we capture the gains, but we can, uh, write off the losses. And so it becomes very advantageous in a one investment, one fail swoop. We're able to play the odds of getting the exposure to get the wins. Right. So there, there are hacks, there are ways you can do it. There are ways like I, uh, there are hacks even to the VC, uh, investment, which is typically a 10 year plus one or two or three extension years. Uh, at the end of that fund, but we figured out ways to kind of get in in the middle or get in at the end, whether it be on a secondary or whether it be a group that does a series A extension uh, in and out on a series uh, B secondary and and um, just ways to take the biggest gains of that 10 years uh, in the shortest period of time. So instead of waiting 10 to 13 years, you can get in and out in a year, two years, three years. Um, so th there are ways that you can get an edge um, that we participate in. And so I model my portfolio after, uh, the groups, the people, the family offices, the billionaires, the, the people that I see, um, having the best results, um, people that, uh, year in and year out are, are performing really well. Uh, I am still heavier in mobile home parks. And so my allocation is going to be a little different there. And, and from a real estate standpoint, I think that's your safest investment class. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's just, it's, it's recession proof and uh, affordable housing is always going to be a thing. And so if I'm going to be heavy in something, I like that industrial is next for me um, as second heaviest. And so, you know, I, I'm probably a little more concentrated there than uh, what I would recommend. And by the way, uh, I'm just sharing my, you know, opinions and thoughts and, and what I do in no way is this financial advice, but, you know, I love teaching people the way I look at things and um, yeah, I'm an educator at heart and, and I love, uh, I love facilitating great conversations. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, having a, a percentage of your allocation in Bitcoin is probably a smart bet or half a percent if you're super skittish or maybe even up to 2%, you know, having, having money in, uh, you guys are doing a new deal, right. On, on, um, uh, the commodity side, oil and gas, you know, having, uh, you know, 1%, 2%, you know, in there. I mean, this is in line with what the family offices do. Uh, well, yeah, we get gyms, you know, raising it up, <laughs> you know, you bullish on how and we're in a good season where you could be bullish for it. Right. But, um, the, the, the reality is you want a little of everything. So whether the market's good or bad, and that's all relative, you have something performing well that is uncorrelated. So to me, I, I like having that uncorrelated, you know, all the uncorrelated assets. Just, let me ask you this. So. Getting into mobile home parks, you know, a decade ago was a really good time to get into it, right? And now it's a little bit harder and, and cap rates have massively compressed. And we've seen that kind of across all of real estate to where cash flow is very difficult to find, um, number one. So for you, as kind of a lifestyle investor, a key kind of principle and, you know, part of this is current cash flow. So getting paid distributions right out the gate. You know, it's 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 been more difficult to find those types of deals that are cash flow at a, at a reasonable rate of return for the risk you're taking. You know, how has that impacted your approach? And can you replicate what you did maybe a decade ago? Is it by shifting, you know, to different asset classes? Is it you know, maybe just accepting a lower rate of return given, you know, some of this cap rate compression? Are you expecting kind of a reversion of cap rates over the next couple of years. I threw about five questions in there, but kind of give us your your thoughts on that. Cause I think that's an important thing to to discuss because 
timing matters in all of this. And you got in at a really good time. And obviously you're a very smart person. You've done a very, very good job growing this, but it also helped being in an asset class that has massively appreciated over the past decade. Yeah, all great questions. And, you know, we could break down, uh, we can go in several directions here. Let, let's just start here with um, the the mere fact that um, mobile home parks, to me, are still, uh, there's still the opportunity to get great returns because it's the least, um, it's the, the least institutionally owned or the least concentrated um, asset class out there. So you, you've got... Um, really about, uh, I think the the newest data is still under 10% of all mobile home parks are, are owned institutionally, whereas you got the flip-flop in multifamily where you got over 90% that are institutionally owned. So yeah, there is all kinds of compression there. The spread is, I mean, it's hard to make sense of it. And and yeah, I want to stay away from deals that don't paper. And I mean, I and for the record, I have said no to a lot of deals over the last decade that um, were using, you know, floating rates or, you know, bridge, you know, short-term bridge financing, because uh, I, I'm too risk averse to want to play that game. And even though I had a lot of friends that made a lot of money because the timing was right, at the moment the timing's wrong, you lose money. And so because of that, I'm in no, I, I have no risk of any deal going bad based on interest rates because I'm not in anything that is subject to uh, the interest rate hikes. I'm all in long-term debt. So, uh, or long-term rates. And so that, that to me is, is, you know, first and foremost is like, I'm going to make good decisions and I might say no to some stuff that could have made money, but that's okay. Maybe I lose some in a frothy environment, but then I win in a tight, um, environment. So that has served me and has served our community, the lifestyle investor community really well. Um, but again, when we go back to like, you know, institutionally owned asset classes, find the ones that, I mean, you've got more baby boomers looking to retire in the next 15 years. I mean, basically the, the, the largest wealth transfer in the history of the world is about to happen in the next 15 years. So baby boomers are going to be passing down, you know, their, their wealth, their, uh, in, uh, you know, money that's going to be inheritance to the millennials. And so if you want to figure out like how to make money, one of, you know, one of my commandments is finding these invisible deals. That's my third, uh, you know, commandment of cash flow investing. Right. And, and finding invisible deals is like paying attention to the trends. What's coming? Uh, well, we know millennials are going to control more wealth than, you know, any other generation in the history of the world. Right. It, it, I've seen some reports say that it's 76 trillion. I've seen other reports say as high as 106 trillion. So, um, you, you look at like the 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 net worth of of the country of China. You're talking about seventy five trillion dollars. So a and, and they're second largest. So you're talking about the greatest wealth transfer in the history of the world is about to happen in the next fifteen years. So if you know what millennials like, how they spend their time, how they spend their money, uh, what you know buying uh, you know criteria they have and decisions, you, you're, there's there's so much opportunity. But then also look at who's going to be transacting. So who owns what assets? What are baby boomers selling? Well, a bunch of them own businesses, a bunch of them own real estate. So like paying attention to that trend is going to make a lot of people very wealthy. I love it. So, I mean, you kind of alluded to it, but but timing matters, trends matter. How is, or where are you kind of seeing, you know, the next, obviously mobile home parks are still good deals out there. You know, maybe they're harder to find than they were 10 years ago. But where else are you seeing, you know, like more specifically, what are some other asset classes and other things you're seeing that you feel like are, you know, good long-term trends to kind of position for as an investor? Well, anytime you're buying from, you know, a baby boom or someone that wants to retire, someone that, you know, their kids don't want their business. So they're, you know, I mean, in all reality, they don't think they can sell it. And so they're going to just shut it down. It's a profitable business that they're just going to close the doors on. Anytime you can find that seller, you're going to get a great deal. So it, it doesn't matter what the business is. And by the way, if you pick businesses that are, you know, uh, performing well, that are trending well, that are, you know, home service-based businesses, or, I mean, we could go in many directions, but like, these are all great businesses. Find, you know, I've got a company in single family home maintenance. And so we know uh, margins on plumbing and HVAC are the two uh, greatest by a landslide margin. So finding businesses in those spaces, I mean, they're... We could go in many directions. Roofing, huge margins there. 
So, I mean, those businesses are great. Um, the real estate that's being, you know, handed down. I think there's all kinds of opportunity in the secondaries market for companies that are super profitable. Like I've bought a ton of secondary, secondary shares in companies that are profitable today that employees just need, you know, that there's a life situation. They need to sell their shares. They're way ahead anyway from when they came in. So they win. And then you get in at a super low valuation compared to where they are, but they're cash flow positive. So I've been doing that a ton. You know, when you have these market corrections, it, it creates so much opportunity. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. There, there's endless places to be able to buy assets um, at, at a good price, uh, in a safe way, in a risk-adjusted way, where if things go wrong, you're not losing all your money. But uh, if things go right, you're making many multiples on your money. I love that. I mean, it's so true, right? So many investors right now are terrified of what's going to happen in the economy. And are we going to go into this deep recession? Is, you know, are we ever going to get out of this pickle we're in? <clears throat> and it freezes a lot of people to not make decisions, not making investments. And sure, you got to be cautious. You've got to understand what you're doing. But at the same time, inflation is not your friend right now if you're sitting on a ton of cash. And we have the same perspective. There's opportunity everywhere. You just have to know where to look and you have to know how to you know, make investments in times like this. You've, you've talked about some of the things you like and obviously the bubble hub parks were this major catalyst for you personally. You know, Have there been any, you know, on the other side of it, things that didn't go the way you expected, whether it was you know, as an LP or as a, uh, an active investor that you invested in that kind of left you with a... Um, you know, a really good learning opportunity, a good experience. Maybe you lost, maybe you didn't lose money, but something that really you, you live with now that has helped you, you know, invest going forward on the on the, the negative side of things. Yeah. I mean, there are tons of, uh, you know, opportunities. We can call them opportunities today. They, they sting in the moment when they don't go as planned. They hurt, uh, you know, when you lose money or you had your money locked up for years and you just break even. Although sometimes that's a win, right? Um, but it's, it's painful when it's just completely opposite of what you anticipate. But I'll also tell you the times that I've lost money, the times that I've broken even, um, those have been some of the best, uh, learning experiences out there. So yeah, I mean, there are definitely some deals that I'm in. In fact, uh, I think I'm legally allowed to talk about this. Uh, I just testified in federal court for, uh, a Ponzi scheme that I was an investor in that I had uh, critical info in and, um, you know, was uh, was requested by the uh, federal government to uh, share the info that I have for this case. And so I just got back from that. And, um, you know, that that's a great situation that um, I talked in depth in my book about where I lost money. This was not a good deal, but I learned so much from that experience that I have become a better investor. I've lost less money because of it. I've made uh, better returns because of it. And had I not lost that money, had I not gone through that experience, um, it would have, uh, opened me up for many other losses in the future. Right. I have a new criteria that I use now. And so if you're and, an investor, these are outlined in your book, I'm assuming, right? So yeah, without, that, without giving the whole, you know, giving it away, cause I'm going to encourage people to read the book after this, but what are the kind of two or three things that it kind of shifts your perspective on or kind of the non-negotiables that you have now when you're looking at opportunities? Well, it, it's funny. I've got uh, Murphy's Laws for the investor and for the lifestyle investor. It, it's like, uh, you know, if it's if it seems too good to be true, it is. I mean, I got a whole bunch of these where it's like, you just have to do your due diligence. You can't base it on emotion. You got to base it on fact. You have to, uh, you, you, you got to, you can trust, but- uh, you, you've got to diligence it, right? So you don't have to go in uh, to every situation feeling like people are lying to you. But I think you will be better off if you go into every deal that you're vetting coming from the standpoint of this is not a good investment. I may know, prove to me why I should invest in this deal as opposed to this is a good investment. Let me see if I can talk myself out of it. And new investors think every deal is a good deal because they don't have enough exposure. They don't have enough reps. And so- I think just the simple mindset of going into every deal saying, this is not a good deal. I'm a hard no right now, unless I can be convinced otherwise. That single thing has been a game changer for me. Mm, that's so interesting. I, I think so much too, another 
thing I see a lot of early investors do is they just look at the returns, right? Are the returns X and they just base all their investment decision based on that without considering what's the risk I'm taking for that return? Is that return mostly cash flow or mostly back in profit when the deal exits? And what's the likelihood of that happening, right? And, and kind of risk adjusting everything is something that I feel is another helpful thing that you're kind of alluding to. But um, can I pile onto that? Yeah. How please. successful is the third party group that is actually running it? Or is it in-house? How much experience have they had? Have they been through a recession? Uh, a pro forma means absolutely nothing. I don't care about your today pro forma. Show me your last deal that went full cycle pro forma. And how did you actually perform to it? And how many deals have you done? And how many deals have gone full circle? Like all those matter. Did you only succeed in the last frothy 10, 11 years? Or did you have success beyond that? Because I only want to invest in people that have been through a recession and have the experience and the know-how. Like we could diligence that in so many directions, but a retail investor doesn't get that. You know, new investors don't get that there's ways to manipulate the preferred return with catch-up clauses. Um, that that, uh, that there's a difference in the waterfall structure between an American waterfall and a European waterfall. There are ways that these groups can make money before the investors make money. And then there are other ways to structure it where the, the GP or the sponsor can't make any money until the investors get paid back and, and make their return. And so the more you learn, the more reps you get, the more you you figure out like who are the the good players that have good reputations, that have the experience, that treat the investors the right way, um, you know, you're going to benefit from that, but you got to get in the game and every investor is going to lose at some point. Every investor is going to lose money at some point. And that's just part of the hard knocks of learning how to become a better investor so that you lose less in the future. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I've said it, like I said, I was going to say it, I'm going to say it now, but you've got to listen and, uh, check out Justin's media platform that he's put together on this lifestyle investor check out his book the lifestyle investor check out the podcast it's also lifestyle investor i believe right yeah and go go to the lifestyleinvestor.com um, he's got a lot of resources he's got different online courses he's got masterminds a lot of really cool things in this community he's building on helping educate investors which is something we're obviously very passionate about here on the podcast and just just love what you're doing justin um and just really appreciate you uh get out there and teaching people what you're doing. So this has been so cool to have you back on. Thanks. Thanks for spending the time with us. Thanks, Justin. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'd love to just make a real quick plug for the book. Um, it was a passion project that I never thought was going to take off the way that it took off. I, I never expected it to be a number one Wall Street Journal, USA Today bestseller or top 1% of all books sold. But I went into this book saying all the profits of this book uh, would be 100% donated um, to, to charities that I support, namely, um, fighting human trafficking. And so I'm really proud to say that this book has now, uh, been responsible single-handedly for donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to these humanitarian efforts. Um, and so, you know, I, I just, uh, want to champion, you know, some of the groups like the Tim Tebow foundation and love justice international and many of the other groups out in the space that are doing cool things. So I, I talk a lot about financial education. I want to help people become financially free, but a lot of people don't realize that some people don't even have their actual human life freedom. And we want to buy that back. Well, thanks. Thanks again, Jess, for coming on. It's been really, really fun. Thanks for having me. Always a blast. I could talk about this stuff all day. So, uh, hey, we'll yeah. see you in California in a couple of weeks, right? I can't wait. I'll be there. We'll have some fun. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks guys.